0: Well hello everybody, good to see you, good to have the chance to open up God's word together with you, good to be able to welcome you here to Pathway in addition to other welcomes you may have received. We are glad that you are here. Are you glad to be here? All right, I love it. I love it. We're going to dig into the scriptures today. We welcome you in the live service. We welcome you online if you're listening there, or maybe in the classic service or on the Moon campus. We are continuing on in a sermon series that we have recently begun. You know, it is widely considered to be the worst trade that was ever made in the history of professional sports. The worst trade ever made, and no, it wasn't when the Steelers picked up Cordell Stewart. No, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. That couldn't be considered to be the worst trade ever because we actually drafted him. We chose him intentionally is what we did. And to be fair, he actually had a decent career with the Steelers. But uh, no, the, the place where we see the worst trade ever made in professional sports, according to most people, was in baseball. And this particular one that I have in mind was a guy who played very, very well with the team that he was with. In fact, he helped them to win three World Series titles in four years. And then, somewhat inexplicably, the team traded him away to another team just for some cash. And when he got to the new team, he ended up winning four more World Series, leading them to four more World Series wins there. And now, all of these years later, over a hundred years later, it's still considered to be the worst trade ever. And the person involved in the trade was? Babe Ruth. That's exactly right. He was the one, the worst trade ever. That's right, he he was playing with the Red Sox, won those World Series with the Red Sox, and then somewhat inexplicably was traded over to the Yankees. And from that moment forward, the Red Sox could do nothing. They could not win another thing. In fact, their their lack of fortune became so legendary that it was given a name. And the name is? The Curse of the Bambino is exactly right. That's exactly right. And it is legendary to the point to even to this day, it's considered to be the worst trade ever made. And it got me to thinking, I'm glad that we don't do trades between churches I'm glad that I, I I don't think I'll wake up one morning and go on Twitter and see that I've been I've been traded to some other church for a deacon and two nursery workers to be named later, right? Yeah, I, I'm glad for that. But I think we can say about Babe Ruth, we could probably agree that that. Was certainly up there, if not the worst trade ever made. And today we're going to be thinking about trades that have been made in a particular passage of scripture, which is very interesting, but it has some rather significant ramifications as we think about the trades that we're going to be taking a look at today. Now when I think about the trades or when I'm I'm talking about this topic, I'm not really talking about trades made of an individual. It's not like we're going to see that Paul was all of a sudden shipped off somewhere else in exchange for Peter. It's not about people. It's about beliefs. It's about actions that we're going to see. And the thing that is particularly interesting and even alarming in this text is that all of us have been involved in these trades. There's none of us who are on the outside. Today we're thinking about making the trade making the trade. Now, the place where we find these trades we're talking about today is in a rather compelling and increasingly controversial passage in the scriptures, and we find it in Romans 1, and I would invite you to go ahead and start to find your way there, Romans 1. We've recently started this series in the book of Romans. This is just our third week, and we've gotten off to a great start. I've been so excited about this, and we're pressing on with that today, and as we've made our way along in previous, uh, s- previous sermons, we've seen who the author of of the book of Romans is, and the author is... Paul, and we've seen who it's written to. It's written to the Roman saints and, and all saints by extension. And by saints, we're not talking about it in the sense of these super spiritual people, these ones who are above and beyond what anybody else is able to do. These are not people that all of a sudden had some super spiritual status conveyed on them. They weren't uh, canonized. That, that's not who is being talked about here. When it talks about saints, it's just talking about believers in Jesus. We are all believers in Jesus if you have come to to the place where you've put your trust in Christ, and if so, then you are a saint in the sense that it speaks of it here, and this is written to you. We've been introduced to the gospel. We've seen that the gospel has to do with Jesus Christ coming into our world, Jesus Christ taking on the sin of mankind, taking it to the cross so that we might have life. He experienced his victorious resurrection over death. It demonstrated that he has the power to give us hope and to give us life. It's a beautiful start that we've had to this book already. And all of that comes to us, not because of anything that we have done or anything that we deserve, but it comes to us through grace And what we are saying and what we are seeing throughout this study, and we will continue to see throughout this study, is what we're centering it all around, and that is that grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. This is beautiful. So, please take your scripture journal. I hope you have it there in your hands. Take it, open it up to page 8. It's the place where we find the scripture passage for today. And uh, right at the top of the section of notes you're going to start taking today, you can just list... Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. That's where we'll be. Also in your pathway notes there is the outline for today. Have that in hand and you can be transferring some notes over and filling in some other things and uh, as we make our way along. So as we get started we see that Paul is laying some of the groundwork for for what he wants to say. He's got to establish a few things before he or as he gets going and so that's what we're going to see him doing here at the very beginning. He's establishing the foundation where it starts starts with the foundation now let's go ahead and take a look at what Paul has to say here beginning in verse 18 he writes this for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth well that's a cheery start (laughs) we're getting off just on on the right foot here you might think Why can't we just go back to that good stuff that we were reading before? Why can't we just go back to that good news about the gospel and those things we were so uplifting? Why can't we go back there? Well, we can go back there. In fact, I would tell you we should go back there. We need to go back there because you may have noticed as we read Verse 18 That it starts with the word for, which is a grammatical clue that says to us this is connected to something that's already been said. And so, to understand really where he's diverting to in this passage, we need to understand where he started, which takes us back to verse 16. Which, if you just look back there, it says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For, we're skipping just a little bit here, for in the righteousness of God, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the good news. And Paul turns the corner then from saying that this is the righteousness of God, that's the good news, to tell us a little bit something about the bad news that not everybody Believes Now, it's not that they can't believe or that they are forced into unrighteousness. What Paul is saying here is that they choose unrighteousness when they suppress the truth. See, the thing is, when we have a vested interest in a certain outcome or an explanation of the facts, perhaps looking for a justification, we have a tendency to suppress the truth, to push it down, to not allow it to blossom in our lives. We suppress it when we have some motivation to do so. I may have told you the story before about an occasion when Carolyn and I were assigned to to make this carrot cake for a, a special event that was coming the next day. And uh, so we did, and uh, we made it, and we wanted it to look just right, and so I, I say we, she did the heavy lifting, but, but uh, we went ahead and piped carrots on each one, orange carrots on each one of what were going to be all the slices around the cake. And so there it was, and we covered it up, and we put it into the fridge and, and the next morning we got up and we opened up the fridge and looked inside and were horrified to find that the cake was still there but all of the orange carrots icing carrots were gone they were all gone and it's like what in the world could possibly have happened we didn't know until our three-year-old daughter walked in from her bedroom with orange frosting residue all around her mouth She'd eaten every one of them off of the cake. And and so he said to her, Did you eat the orange frosting off the cake? And she sort of haltingly said, No. <laughs> smiling with the orange frosting all around, all around her lips. Well, you see, when we have a vested interest in a certain outcome or an explanation of the facts, we have this tendency to suppress the truth because we want to justify our position or the circumstance that we're in, and that's what he's talking about here. But you might say, don't we have to know the truth in order to suppress the truth? Good question, and the answer is yes. We do need to know the truth. And Paul is suggesting here, what we need to understand is he's helping us to understand that the knowledge of the truth might be a bit broader and more widely understood than what we otherwise might understand or think on the surface. That's a key part of the foundation that we're talking about here. And it has to do with revelation has to do with revelation, all right? We're continuing to fill out that outline. God desires that people would know him, so he has been revealing himself for thousands of years in a variety of different ways. That's what Paul is getting at here when he goes on in verses 19 and 20. Look at what he he writes here. He writes, for who can be known... For what let me start it over. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now let me just say this right up front. When he says "them," he means us." He's talking about all of humanity. He's talking about every one of us who process the circumstances that God has revealed to mankind. All right? So we're all in here. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to us, because God has shown it to them, to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So we are without excuse. This is another place where the theology of Romans is very much on display. We've talked about the fact that it's a very theological book, but yet it is also immensely practical and applicable, and all of those things kind of get brought together in this. But here's a piece of that theology. See, Revelation is actually a classical understood uh, section or, or piece of theology. Revelation is a category of theology, and he's talking about that right here, and it just talks about how God reveals himself to mankind. And there are two different categories of revelation. The first of those is what we refer to as general revelation. General revelation is that which tells us general things about God, and so we take a look around us at the things that we can see, the sky and the stars and and all of creation and mankind, and we have something there that we can look at that helps us to understand a little something about God. That's what Paul has in mind here in Romans. It is also what David has in mind in Psalm 19 when he writes this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He's saying, look at the sky above, look at the sun, look at the stars, and you can see God there in a general sort of way, you can see God there, but there is enough for you to understand that there is intelligent design behind what we are looking at. You look at the at the intricacies of the human body, or you look at the way that the earth interacts with the solar system, and the way that it works just right, so that we all are able to continue on with life, and it's like there is a designer here, and you can just look at that, and he says, because of general revelation, you can understand that God is there, so that we all have the opportunity to believe. Now, it doesn't tell us everything that we would want to know about God, but it does tell us enough so that we might be able to come to the place of belief. General revelation is the first of the categories of revelation in that theological framework or understanding. The second of those is not general. It is specific or special. It can go under either one of those categories. This gives us specific information. It is through special revelation that we come to understand about Jesus and about the cross and about faith and about how all of those things work together. The Bible is a demonstration of special revelation because the Bible tells us specific things about God. It tells us specific things about Jesus so that we can understand on a level that goes beyond just what we can surmise and the things that we look at around us. The incarnation of Jesus, or Jesus coming into our world, is another demonstration of special revelation because we are coming to understand specific things about Jesus, special understanding that goes beyond that which is general. So uh, revelation is a theological category, and these are two different levels of what this sort of revelation is all about, and Paul is helping us to understand that here. Now, revelation is a key part of the foundation that Paul is laying for us, but there's another part here as well, and that is rejection, all right? You've got revelation, and also here, part of his foundation, he's saying there's also rejection. You might think that If God has gone to so much effort to reveal himself to us as he has, that we would just happily receive what he has put out there for us to understand. But that's not what we've done. It goes on, verse 21 says, For although they knew God through revelation, he's revealed himself, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God has revealed himself to us in revelation in general ways and in specific ways. He's revealed himself to us through creation and he's revealed himself also in us through our conscience. For what we can come to know and understand, we look at the intricacies of the human body and it's like I, I, can, I can figure out that there's some sort of intelligent design that is going on behind this. And it would seem that a fitting response then would be humility and deference and worship and honor and praise and thanksgiving. You would think that that is the way that we would respond when we see these things around us, but that's not what we did. What we did is suppress the truth and our hearts were darkened, he says. And we all have the same problem. You might think of it kind of like this. When it comes to the truth about God, the problem is not that we can't acquire it, it's that we don't desire it. It's not that we can't understand it. It's that we haven't embraced it to the point where we allow it to shape us and to change who we are and how we live our lives. Even in the face of the truth about God, there is this pull to do our own thing. Why? Because we like to be in control. We like to be the one who calls the shots. And so it's easy for us oftentimes because we want to be the one in control and what God seems to be leading me to is going to take me out of control so I'm going to suppress the truth that I know so that I might be able to continue to go the direction I desire to go. That's what he is talking about here and this is a, a problem for all of us, something that we all face because we all have that tendency. Now most of us don't need any more evidence of the fact or the reality of God, or his absolute power in authority, here we might also say it this way, we don't need to be convinced, we need to be humbled. And this is so often where I find myself, and you may find yourself, it's not that I don't know what's right, it's just a matter of having the will to do what's right. I need to humble myself. And so often I find that this is what it is with, with spiritual concerns and with Christians moving forward in their spiritual walk. It's not that you need more light. It's just that you need to act on what the light is that you have. And that's what Paul is pointing out for us here as well. We don't need to be convinced. We need to be humbled. But all of us have this inclination to fight against that because we have this desire to elevate ourselves. So we'll suppress the truth or we'll twist the truth so it allows me to do what I want to do. So it allows me to justify my actions. If I pretend that that's not really truth or if I'm not or if I ignore it and push it away or refuse to read that scripture that I'm supposed to read because I know it's going to convict me That's what allows us to continue to go down that path. And when we do that, it leads us to making some trade-offs. To being willing to trade in something that we should do for something that we choose to do. And so Paul goes on to highlight some of these for us. So let's take a look at the trades, all right? We read about the first trade as Paul continues in verse 22. In talking about one who suppresses the truth, he writes, Claiming to be wise, they become fools, and exchange, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The first trade is God's glory to idols. It's a trade-off that's been made: God's glory to idols. Mankind, you see, is wired to worship. There's always going to be something that we elevate and hold in high esteem, and Paul says that right in front of us is the eternal God who has created us, who has fashioned us, who's given us everything to enjoy. He's given us life. He's given us health. He's given us breath. All of that he's given. It would make 100% sense to worship him, to bow down before him, to acknowledge him to be holy, but we didn't do that. Instead, we exchange God's glory in worshiping him as such for idols is what we have done. Paul says that we make idols of all sorts of things, of of other humans or of birds or of animals. In fact, he says that we are so intensely interested in worshiping, we will even stoop to worship things that creep on the ground. Even things that creep on the ground. I mean, we, who can imagine we'd actually stoop that low? But you know who you are. <laughs> you know who you are, all right? Uh, of course, we think of ancient people, right? They're the ones who worship birds and worship animals and, and worship images of stone and images of wood, and we think, how backward, how uncivilized are they how ridiculous is that how how primitive they were and we think of ourselves we're not in that category we're much more sophisticated we're much more modern much more enlightened which doesn't mean that we don't have idols it means that our idols are more modern our idols are more sophisticated see we might consider an idol to be this an idol is anything that commands our attention in a way that diverts our attention from God. Anything that commands our attention and diverts, as it does so, our attention away from God. That's what an idol is. So we can be drawn toward more modern idols, and we are, but we don't see them as idols. There things could be things like careers, where we're so engaged in in making it big or making the money or being successful or whatever it is that it becomes an idol to the point where it steals from us the opportunity to be engaged in service toward Christ to be fully sold out to be the believer that we are called to be first and foremost in our hearts and in our lives remember when we got started with Paul what did he say right up front in the book he said Paul servant of Jesus Christ and what can servant also be translated there as slave you've been paying attention good for you absolutely Paul says, I'm willing to be a slave for Christ. That's what it means to be sold out. And that's what we're being called to. And when we choose not to be sold out for Christ, we're sold out for something else. And that's what an idol is. It could also be family, sports, hobbies, money, Anything at all that diverts our attention away from giving ourselves fully over to God and so if you would find yourself in a place where you can't say I'm fully sold out Then I encourage you to ask yourself. What is it? What is the thing that is standing in the way? Have you doing so because it's a way to identify what our idols really are all about and Here's the deceptively dangerous part of it all. We tend to pursue those things proudly thinking that we're enlightened, we're modern, we're taking positive steps forward. But look at verse 22. Here again, it says, claiming to be wise, they become or became fools. See, there's a loss of shame in our world today as we boldly go our own way, You notice that? You look around and it's like people are more bold about going and doing their own thing, not really caring what anybody else thinks. Why? Because they think I've got my handle on or my hands on what is really true, the things that really ought to be pursued. I'm the one who is following after that, which is really important in the world in which we live. We go after those things and they go after those Things thinking themselves to be so enlightened, not recognizing, as Paul says, how foolish they really are. And when we do, what we're doing is trading God's glory for idols. So Paul points that out to us, and he goes on. He says there's another trade that is made, and that is from truth to lie. From truth to lie. This is a similar idea to the first one. It's stated in a different way. If you take a look at verse 25, Paul adds, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here again, he's speaking of those who take the blessings that God has bestowed on them of, of life and gifts and talents and go on and use that for their own enrichment, pushing God aside as they do so, the very one who has given them the life and the gifts and the talents to begin with, not recognizing, again, how foolish they are and when we do so we convince ourselves that it's it's a good thing we convince ourselves that we're in the right to do that is it that we don't know any better no not at all but we will tell ourselves lies if they will serve our own preferences if they'll serve our own interests we're willing to go ahead and suppress the truth trade in truth for a lie So it allows me to stay on the throne. So it allows me to pursue my own interests. And Paul's just trying to call that out. He's just trying to shine a big spotlight on it so that we can see it because we can be so blinded. It's so hard to see that in ourselves. In part because we see it all around us. It's like, well, that's just the way that the world operates. But it's not the way that the servant of Jesus operates. But here's the ominous reality What we see in verse 24, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Truth is that if you are going to insist on walking away from God, he'll let you. See, he's given you a free will, and he's given you the opportunity to go the direction that you choose to go. See, there's no glory given to God if he, if he just makes you into a robot who, know, who has no option other than to, to worship before him if it was all dictated and it was all required and you didn't have a choice anyway. Where's the glory to God if you worship? There is none whatsoever. But he gave you a free will so that when you do make the choice to follow after God, you're demonstrating how it is that you feel toward God the love that you genuinely have for him, and the worship is then genuine as you line yourself up with the call and the purposes of God who has made you in his image and has called you as a servant. It means everything when we respond out of our own free will to do so. But if we choose not to, he says you have that choice. But as we do so, we're trading truth for a lie. Then there's one more trade that Paul highlights here, and it's from the natural to the contrary. Verse 26 starts with the same point we saw in verse 24 a moment ago. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Again, he's saying we have the power to walk away, if that's the choice that we're going to make. Then he continues. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As you're undoubtedly aware, a passage like this is, is highly controversial and has caused a lot of angst among believers and unbelievers and anyone who would read the scriptures. People's beliefs on the topic of homosexuality, which of course is what this passage is talking about, are very, very strong. And I'm sure that your feelings on the topic are very strong. And just bringing up the subject might leave you a little bit nervous, regardless of what your personal convictions might happen to be on this topic. And add to that the fact that the church universal has not always done a very good job of talking about this, let alone with dealing with or interacting with people who are walking in this, leaves this as a place that there could be tremendous hurt or misunderstanding. And so what I want to do is simply consider what Paul is saying. I just want to lay out what what is it he's saying, understand the context in which he's saying it, And then ask ourselves, well, what does that require of us as we respond to what he is saying? And as we do so, you may hear some things that you completely agree with. You may hear some things that would challenge your thinking. And what I just want to encourage you to do is to open your mind and to extend grace to the ideas that Paul is bringing out. And I pray the way that I express them. So, we've already seen what Paul says. We read it here just a moment ago, and what he is saying there is that he considers the practice of homosexuality to be a departure from God's intended design for mankind. He is taking it to the point of calling it sinful. Now, there's an argument that gets brought up today a lot that what Paul is doing here is he's just, he's just talking about Circumstances where it's practiced in an unloving sort of way or in a selfish sort of way or not in a a committed relationship sort of way and just like that would be a problem in any heterosexual sort of environment that it's a problem then in a homosexual environment and that Paul wouldn't have known anything about a committed relationship or people in a relationship that lasted for a period of time. But that's just simply not true, because a lot of people don't understand that homosexuality was essentially as prevalent in the first century Rome as it is in 21st century America. Just as much so, all the way from Roman emperors on down to others throughout society. It is present, and it is rampant, and some of it was ongoing, long-lasting, the historians, ancient historians will tell us. So he understood what was going on. He's not speaking from ignorance here. And when he speaks to it, he doesn't appeal to how wrong it was at the time. He says that the trade that has been made is from natural relations to those which are contrary to nature. And in that, he's appealing to something broader. He's appealing to creation. He's appealing to design, which takes it beyond just his immediate context. He's putting it in the context of all human history. And so he's say it's not just about my specific situation, as he writes it here. Now, that being the case, we also need to keep in mind the context where Paul drops this in. See, this is a passage about how all of us have rejected God's rightful place in our lives and how we have chosen to pursue our own self-interest. We've seen this all the way along in this passage here to this point, and we've chosen to worship self rather than God, and that leads us to certain outcome. Then he says here that one of the places that that manifests itself is in sexual relationships, and he just says there in verse 26, he's talking about homosexual relationships, but if you look back to 24, what is being spoken of there is actually heterosexual relationships that were out of line with what they ought to be. But the sin of idolatry manifests itself, manifests itself, not just in those areas, not just in sexual areas, but other areas as well. And he speaks to that as he goes on. Let me read on, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled, remember, they is us talking to all mankind in the way that all of mankind has responded. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and in- invest- inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I ask you, which one of us is not guilty of something on that list? In fact, we might go so far as to ask, which one of us is not guilty of multiple things? Maybe most of us are guilty of most of the things on that list as we read it through. Nobody is innocent. And here's the question I think that we need to grapple with. What is the the big sin in this passage? What is the big sin that we read here? Many times and in many places the church's answer would be simple. It's like, well, homosexuality. Of course, that's that's what it is. That's the big big sin that we find here. But that's not the big sin in this passage. Now, understand when we talk big sins, in the grand scheme, there's no big sin and little sin. Every sin required Jesus to take it upon himself and go to the cross for that. But I think you get what I'm getting at. I might say it like this. The overarching sin is rejecting God and serving self. It is not homosexuality. Is not anything else on that list. It's the way that he set us up for all of this and laying the foundation. The overarching sin is rejecting God and serving self. That is the sin that has opened the door to everything else. It's though, it's though we've got this. The overarching sin is rejecting God and serving self. That's what we do. That's our heart. And as we walk through the door of that sin, it manifests itself in all of these different ways. All of this list that we have read. And exactly why that leads one person toward selfishness and it leads another person toward homosexuality and another person toward envy and another person toward slander, it's not completely clear why the common sin that we have results in different expressions of that sin in different people. But the overarching sin is the same. We all come at it through the very same door of sin, and we need to understand that. And what that requires of us in the church is that we refuse to draw lines between acceptable sins and abhorrent sins, or the sins that we will be okay to live with and the sins that we're not okay to live with. That's not an option that we are given here. There is no place for us to ignore our own sin of slander and at the same time stand in judgment of somebody who's gay. There is, that is not our moral high ground to stand on. If you're one of the things in the list, you're just as guilty as someone who's gu- uh, guilty of anything else that is present in the list. Without exception, what we need to be is broken in our sin and pursuing reconciliation with God, tearing down the idols in our lives and making God Lord of all. That's what we need. That's what we all need. Regardless of where you find yourself on the list that we've just read, we're all in the same boat and we're all in the need of grace. Why? Because grace can change everything. And our prayers ought to be for ourselves that God's grace would overwhelm so that we might rid ourselves of the thing that we're guilty of. Because they're all the same thing in the list. And you're on no higher ground if you've got sins that seem more acceptable to you than what the sins of the person next to you are. We need to look internal. We need to recognize that just looking down on others, ignoring my own sin, is nothing more than self-righteousness. We need to seek and discover God's grace because it can change our own heart, whatever it is that we're struggling with. And that leads to one more thing we've got to end with, and that is the hope. The hope. I'm just going to let Paul offer this in his own words to the Corinthians, who were probably the most corrupt people they ever wrote to or visited or worked with. Here's what he writes. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, same term he's using here in Romans 1, will not inherit the kingdom of God? It goes on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God. You might say, hey, I thought you were going to tell us about hope. I am. Next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's good news. That is hope. For all of us, friends, there is hope in the fact that Jesus meets us all right where we are, and that's our heart at Pathway. There's a respect that is due to every single person simply because of the fact that they are made in God's image, and that is true whether they are Christian or non-Christian, young or old, male or female, gay or straight, black or white. It doesn't matter. There's a respect that is due to everybody because they're simply made in the image of God. So hear me when I say to you, if you're dealing with same-sex attraction and the numbers are escalating, not just outside the church, inside the church, I pray with and talk to people who are facing circumstances. Friends, if that is you, understand Jesus loves you, and we do too. And we welcome the opportunity to talk to you and to hear your story because you're valued in God's sight and you're valued in ours. And if you are a parent of an LGBTQ child, I understand that's difficult. I know that there might be a certain shame that you feel because of that, because I've talked to parents and that's what they express that they feel. And it may be that when your kid came out of the closet, you felt like you had to go into one to protect yourself or to hide, maybe because of your shame. If that's your circumstance, we love you too. And we don't want you to have to face it alone. So we'd love to talk to you. We'd welcome the opportunity to hear your story as well. We've got people who've gone through this. They've walked this road who are more than happy to sit down and talk. Or they're processing it right now. We'd be happy to process it together with you. And I would encourage you to step out and to take that opportunity to do so. The good news, friends, is that where there is Jesus, there is always hope. Because the gospel tells us, what Romans is about is the gospel. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus came into our world and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and provided for us the grace and the mercy and the removal of sin by taking it upon himself. That's how much he loved every one of us, regardless of what your sin or sins are in the list. Jesus came to take it out of the way for you. That's a beautiful thing. That, my friends, is grace. And as you know, grace changes everything. So there is always hope, regardless of where we are, regardless of where we've been, regardless of how long we've been there. God offers you hope today. And we're all, without exception, in need of it. There's no bigger sinner here than anybody else because we have all sinned and pushed Jesus away as we chose to reject him and lift up self. And so no self-righteousness, no greater holier than thou, just fellow strugglers trying to work ourselves to the place where God reaches to us, that we might take his hand and experience his mercy and his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's plain speech. Forgive us for the way that we have been guilty of the very things that he speaks of, of, of lifting up ourselves and of rejecting you and of putting ourselves on a pedestal or allowing ourselves to dismiss what is present in our lives, allowing us to suppress the truth so that we might be able to continue down a path or to justify our own sin. Or today we just want to come before you humbly. We want to stop promoting ourselves. We want to live in the pattern of your example, the example of Jesus. We want to be servants of yours. We want to follow after you. But Lord, as we think of this issue that Paul forces us to wrestle with, Lord, we confess times that we've, when we've acted out of self-righteousness, when we've dismissed our own sin as being minor and we've, shaking our fists or our fingers at others considering their sin to be major. Lord, we recognize the truth that you've brought to us and we don't want to trade it in for any lies. We want to take Paul at his word and what he says and, and understand the, the weight and the impact of what that is. But we also want to find a way forward so that together we might be able to navigate the circumstances of this life, the circumstances of our own sin, so that together we might experience victory over it. And we have the power to do so because we've got the gospel. There is all the hope in the world available to us, but we need to be willing to humble ourselves to take and embrace it. We don't need more light. We don't need to acquire more knowledge. We need to desire more obedience. So Lord, may our response today be a look internally in what it is that you're calling us to do. The attitudes that you would invite us to take on and the confession that you would call us to take. Lord, we want to be a place that demonstrates your love, that holds strong to truth, and does it in the way of love so that we might be able together as people at various points along the spectrum move according to your will and into your perfect plan for all of us. So Lord, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our self-righteousness. And help us to walk in newness of life, embracing a grace that we did not deserve, allowing it to transform who we are. Thankful that grace changes everything. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.